Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. Today's show is sponsored by Mikasa Home Inspections, Calgary's top-rated home inspection company. Mikasa understands that the highest quality of service is essential, so make sure to call Mikasa before your next real estate deal. And now your host, Corey Peckford. On today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rachel and Neil Oliver. They're the owners of Clover Properties. They've helped more than 700 families stop renting and start owning. Their story is very inspiring. They've created a win-win system that helps renters become home buyers and investors who do not want to deal with toilets and tenants are still able to invest in real estate, make a great ROI, and that really reduces their risks and their time in the process. Hi, uh, good afternoon, uh, Rachel and Neil. Just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. We're going to start out by you guys telling me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the rent-to-own space. We got started because I wanted to create some more time freedom and spend some time with our kids. We had little kids at the time and I was climbing the corporate ladder, working in some cases, 60, 70 hour weeks traveling, trying to uh, compete for you know the, the next raise, the next promotion, asking for time off. And finally, I just, I, I went through a health setback. I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. And that gave me a wake up call that time is so precious. And time is really the only thing in my life that I can control. And I wanted to take it back. And I said, Danielle, that we're going to do this with real estate. I don't know how we don't really know where to start. But I knew that we needed some sort of an investing vehicle that would allow us to replace that corporate income. And after a lot of research, and I would say mind massaging and uh, mind brainwashing. Control, mind control. Yeah. <laughs> um, Influ I, influence, I, influence. <laughs> influence, yeah, that's the politically correct way of saying it. <laughs> not what I call it though. <laughs> I got to consider the idea and rent to own was part of the, the recommendations that I brought back. Is that how it happened? That's pretty much how it happened. So Rachel would go to a lot of these real estate meetups at the time. They were doing a lot of them in person in the Toronto and GTA area. There was a lot of these popping up. So she would go and she would bring back different ideas. We need to do this and we need to do that. And we should be involved in this. And I really wasn't at all interested in real estate at that time. So, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, this is not new to me or this is new to me. This is foreign to me. I don't really, you know, confused mind says no, right? I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to invest here. No, we're not going to do that. And we were both in the corporate world, both doing very well at that time. But she did convince me to go and look at a few properties uh, for rental. We're going to buy a property and start renting. And uh, I wish we'd bought them now because the market has gone up so much that mm -hmm. we'd be laughing. But at that time, it was still not a thing that either of us were overly interested in. Rachel has a saying where she doesn't like tenants or toilets. So for us, it was like, yeah, this is too much extra work, like to be honest with you. And we didn't have any experience already in this world, in that world. So we decided we weren't going to pursue that. Then she brought rent down to the table and she'd found someone who had been doing a few of them in and around our area. So we actually approached him about educating us on how to do a rent to own ethically, I guess is the word. So we ended up paying him to train us. He trained us. We started working on, on our own rent to owns pretty much right after our training ended. 
And then for me, I got laid off from my job, which was unexpected, but it was actually a blessing uh, because it thrust me full time into the rent to own world. And that's sort of where we got started. I rebuilt the, the way we were trained. I rebuilt the entire program. It's an evolutional or evolutionary process. It's always evolving, you know, because as the market changes, as prices change, as people's circumstances change, we have to continuously make our program work and fit and be successful. So definitely, I lost my job. We started this full time and here we are. Yeah, that's amazing. That's such a powerful story you guys shared. Uh, I can definitely relate. I've got a, a backstory too to how I got to where I am, but it's for another day. But yeah, that's amazing, guys. And then how long have you guys been doing the rent own? We started officially, I think we started dabbling in 2009. And then I think the floodgates opened in 2010. And what made the floodgates just open? Was it just you guys kind of got more familiar with it? It was focus, right? Because in 2009, yeah, in 2009, we were both working. Time out. No, the first thing was getting Mr. No to say yes. It took a lot of mind shifting for Neil. He was not in the mindset real estate investing. And I think one of the first things that we've learned, you know, obviously hindsight is 2020, is that you have to be in the right mindset in order for floodgates to actually open. Mm. And I think there was a big shift mentally for him. He's a numbers guy. So when I finally clued into how to get Mr. No to say yes, I basically shoved a bunch of spreadsheets in front of him. I said, run the numbers. Tell me after you run the numbers yourself that you think this is still too risky or you think that this isn't going to give us the opportunity to reach the financial goals that I feel we need to be reaching. And that's when things shifted. Yes and no. In 2009, we were both still working full time. I was trying to tackle this part time. And I can tell you one bit of advice. This is not a part time job. You can't draw people into asking about your program and then you know, interview them and educate them and qualify them all on a part-time basis. So that is sort of where I lost my job in 2009 towards the end. I focused on rent to own in 2010. And that being, I guess, also with the mindset change is where things took off. So it was focus and mindset for sure. Amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And now for for our listeners that aren't familiar with rent-to-owns, can you guys start maybe with just a 10,000-foot view what a rent-to-own is and just kind of give some, yeah, just some details? Okay, well, why don't you tackle the tenant buyer side and then I'll chime in on the investor side. Sure. For a tenant buyer, it's a way to get into home ownership when they're being shut out traditionally. So they can't qualify with the banks. Maybe they have some debt. Maybe they have some credit challenges. Maybe they've been through a divorce and that set them back a little bit. It could be they're new to the country and they're waiting on their PR to come through. It could be that they're self-employed and not, and not really putting through enough income uh, through the company due to expenses and so on. rent gives them the time to improve the things that are holding them back, but allows them to be in the home already, right? So if somebody wanted to buy today, we put them in the home, we then work with them and support them through a two, three, four year term where they can repair whatever's holding them back or improve what's holding them back because you're not repairing something with CRA, you're just reporting more income. And then at the end of the term, they would buy the property. So we just make sure that they have the opportunity to pick a home they love, opportunity to repair or build up what's holding them back. And then they qualify for their own mortgage and take on that property at the end of that two, three, four year term. 
That makes sense. And now, and there's an option to buy. Is that right? It doesn't. They don't have to buy, but there is it, or do they? Are they on the hook to buy? No, it's it's definitely an option. But I mean, the alternative is that they lose their down payment, right? So yeah. it's not a great option if they choose not to purchase. We do to put them on a path of success. So we have them select their home. You know, when somebody is emotionally connected to something, their chances of success are probably double what it would be if they didn't have that emotional connection. So when they pick the home and then they put their down payment on the property, now they're financially connected as well. The emotion and the financial have allowed us to you know, successfully exit a lot of people into their own homes. Yeah, that's a great strategy. And then what were you going to share, Rachel? Oh, I was just saying, there's the other part of it. So Neil talked about the, the home buyers that need rent to own in the first place. Those are generally the people that can't qualify for a mortgage. And there's what we call something called families helping families. So there's an opportunity for another family, just like us, that can qualify for a mortgage at a great interest rate and step in to purchase the home that family can then rent to own from that investor. And what we have done, I mean, at the beginning, we were the investor piece and we were also the in-between piece. But over the years, we've expanded our abilities to serve more home buyers and we can't take on every single mortgage in every situation. So we've built up a network of investors that essentially leverage our turnkey system and leverage our expertise to be able to be that in between between the home buyer that needs the rent to own, where we screen them, where we vet the properties that they're looking at, where Neil negotiates all the numbers and puts all the contracts together. On the flip side, we have an investor family that is getting basically all of this done for them. And they're benefiting from the fact that these home buyers are not coming in with just first and last month's rent. They're actually coming in with an initial down payment. And that can be $20,000, $25,000, $35,000. So that offsets how much capital the investor has to put into the deal. And it also offsets a big chunk of risk. And it multiplies your annualized rate of return because you're leveraging the bank's money to get the mortgage. Um, 80% loan to value. Plus you've got these people coming in, giving you 20, 30, $40,000 that you then put into the deal. So you have to put in less capital of your own. And then ultimately what you have is a profit from cash flow each month. And then you have also profit from the sale at the end when that tenant buyer exercises their option to purchase, you ultimately transact on his purchase and sale transaction. And you profit from selling the property to, to that family at a higher price tag down the road. So you profit from cash flow, you profit from the sale and combined you in some cases, you know, I mean, we're, we're able to see double digit returns on the investment deals we're doing even in today's high interest rate environment. So you're looking, obviously you're only going to buy a quality product. So quality place and obviously find a quality person to work with. It all starts with everybody be kind of being quality, I guess, even, even the JV person, right? So then your investors. Yeah, absolutely. We don't work with every single investor that comes to us. We do screen our investors to the same degree that we screen the home buyers. We have to make sure that we are bringing the right people into every every arrangement. And Neil often says we're not about the transaction, we're really about the relationship. And that relationship extends beyond just, you know, Neil and I having a relationship with that investor. It also extends into us having the relationship with that rent-to-own family as well. Yeah, 100%. And now do you guys, it sounds like that's your that's bread and butter or that's what you would do with most deals, but do you occasionally work with people that where there isn't the maybe the JV partner and, and they currently own the property and they want to turn it into a rent to own 
Do you guys do any of that or mentorship or help in yeah, that way? That's, that's a great question, Corey. So when it comes to rent owns, there's two paths. You can do people first, property second, which is our area of expertise. And then there's the property first, people second. And that's, I think, what you're asking about. Mm, yes, and there yeah. are some pros and cons to doing property first, people second. What do you want to share about that? So my experience anyway, having I deal with all of the home buyer families. So my experience has been if I'm told, for example, what to buy, I'm going to struggle succeeding at buying it, right? If I don't have the choice of the property I want, then there's a good chance that after a year, after two years, I may decide that this isn't worth it for me. I don't want to live here long term. I can't see myself fulfilling the obligation to purchase this home and succeeding at that that point in the rent own. Whereas we have found that with people first, again, that personal and emotional connection is so important. And when you talk to them after they find a house and they're so giddy, oh, I can't wait. Oh, we love the property. We can see our dogs running in the backyard. You know, our kids are going to love their bedrooms. I personally have not received the same sort of feedback when I say, hey, here's a property. It's the only one I got. You know, this is what you can rent to own. So the con is that they usually don't have that emotional connection, right? And our experience in Ontario anyway has been that there's been more failure than there is success at property first. That's not to say it can't work. It's just to say that it hasn't been the right environment for it to work so far for us in our experience. Yeah, that's interesting how much uh, the emotional connection affects the outcome. It's very true. I mean, relationship as well, right? Like, it's one thing to work with somebody, for example, a landlord and a renter, right? There's some landlords that don't develop a relationship with the renter, they may have issues with that renter, they may, you know, may have problems where they don't pay, and then they can't get them out. For example, here in Ontario with the landlord tenant board, there might be other issues in Calgary where you have a, a great tenant, but you don't build a relationship and they become less of a great tenant. They damage the property. They don't really care about the property. But if you build relationship with those people, they will care more about what you own and what they're going to own in a rent-to-own scenario, right? This has been my experience. So emotional and relationship are very important. The financial is usually the least important because most people, whether they put 20 or 40 down, they can't afford to lose that money right? So they're putting it down with the intention that they're going to own that property at the end. But if they don't have the emotional and you haven't built a relationship with them, it becomes a bit more of a challenge, I guess is the best way to put it. So is it kind of, it's similar to any other home buying process. You're going to have a realtor and you're going to find a product on MLS typically, and they're going to go through those same steps where they're, they're looking at different properties. And then that rent to own person will fall in love with the property and and then you guys would basically structure the, the deal with that property. Is that how it's working? How it works? Exactly. exactly. They get to go house hunting. So the first part is getting set up in terms of understanding what they can and cannot qualify for. Because at the end of the day with rent owns, it's the end game. That's the final objective. Getting them into a rent own is really not the objective. Getting them out of the rent to own is the key. And I think a lot of people, when they talk about property first, people second rent owns. It's partially fueled and motivated from the investor's lens, just wanting somebody to come in, pay the mortgage, deal with the maintenance and repairs, and kind of just collect a passive cash flow. It doesn't really occur to that investor that the end game is actually for those people to do all that, but ultimately exit three years later into an ownership position on that property. 
So in order for that exit to actually be realistic, there's a whole bunch of mechanics that have to be done up front to ensure that that's going to be possible. And I talk to a lot of investors that call me saying, I have a property. Can you help me bring in somebody to rent to own it? And when I say to them, you know, here's the type of people we're looking at in terms of their affordability and in terms of the initial down payment, they, they look at me like, why is that even important? Why can't you just put it up to rent to own? I said, well, because the people need to be able to pass the stress test to be able to qualify for a mortgage on this property. Well, if they can afford the payments, doesn't that mean that they should be able to rent to own it? I said, no, because we have to factor in their debt load. We have to factor in what's happening on their credit report and how long will it take them to resolve some of the challenges that we are currently seeing there? Is it going to take two years, three years, or four years? Investors are very taken aback that there's all of these mechanics behind the scenes to set up the rent to own. So an investor who has a property, they just want basically someone to move in and start paying for it. They're not thinking from the end game. Whereas when we talk about people first, that's coming from a place of, yes, we want to get them into rent own only if we see the path to get them out so that they can go into an ownership position. So one is an exit strategy. When you own the property, rent own is kind of like an exit strategy, but for the investor, not the tenant buyer. Whereas when you do rent owns, people first, property second, it's more tenant buyer centric. And that's really where I feel the risk is reduced tremendously for the investor side. That's where you truly benefit from the no tenants, no toilets hassles, because when you plan the exit and you work towards the plan, things go a lot smoother. There's fewer surprises. Thanks for sharing that. It's so interesting to hear the difference between the, the two kind of philosophies or property first, uh, people first. I, I haven't heard of that in that way, but that's great. Uh, I think that's great for our listeners to hear as well. You guys do deal with any type of property. So let's say this, the rent to own person, their budget's only going to get them into a condo versus a detached kind of any product is basically what you'd look at for your rent to own people. So most product, yes. So condos, condo town, semis, detached, uh, just towns in general, they can all work. We don't really do rural property. So if there's a property on 25 acres, it's not really a great fit. We don't do hobby farms or farms. Mobile homes are a no-go as well, or anything on lease land. Anything that's going to be a challenge to get financing for usually will result in financing challenges for the home buyer as well. And because they're not going to be situated properly with a big enough down payment at the end of the rental, they may find they have a harder time qualifying for a mortgage on those types of properties. So rather than go down that path, we just avoid them altogether because it is much easier to kind of have a structure we want them to work within. So, so yeah, we just, we do have limitations, of course, but I think that would be the same for any rental as well. I'm not sure there are too many landlords that would race out to buy a farm to rent it out. It just becomes a bit more of a challenging rental, right? For sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And then you had mentioned the down payment amount. So you said some, anywhere from 20 all the way up sometimes to 35. Do you guys kind of have a minimum that you would look at for, for someone that was doing a rent to own? that's basically they need to have? There is a minimum, but that minimum also caps the maximum purchase power. So the lower the down payment, the lower the ceiling in terms of what they can go for. And it's constantly a moving target because as real estate prices etch upwards, 
that uh, minimum down payment keeps creeping upwards as well. When we first started, I think our minimum was $5,000. Yeah. You remember that? Those were the days. And now what's your minimum? So minimum is 15 down, but only up to about 425 or 450 of house. So again, we want to make sure that the investors are not taking on any additional risk by having a smaller down payment, which might put them into a situation where they don't have as much leverage. So we keep the price point more simplistic at that point. So 15K up to 425, 450-ish. And then it's basically 4 to 5% on top of that, or not on top of that, but on prices above 425, 450. So 500 would be 20, 25K. 600 would be 25, 30K and so on and so on and so on. Again, the key is to ensure that we're not putting our investors into a risky situation, right? That's the benefit of a rent to own is that there's less risk. So by having this down payment, it just puts us as investors into a position where we have a bit of leverage over the property, I guess, more than anything. But it also at the same time, offsets the risk for the tenant buyer family. And that is really important as well, because the bigger down payment consideration uh, they have at, at the start, that means that their monthly payments are going to be, in some cases, lower because their initial down payment was higher. So it gives them a little bit more breathing room because they're that much closer to accumulating the, the target down payment that we want them to get to. And the more of a down payment that they have accumulated through the rent-to-own process, the easier it'll be for them to exit the rent-to-own and exercise that option to purchase. So as far as bringing in that initial down payment, that is a perfect example of how Neil has re-engineered rent-to-owns to make it truly a win-win and risk-proof for both sides of the equation. And then you guys are probably doing some coaching and maybe some consultation. So if your client, the rent-to-own person, initially gives you the down payment, they qualify for X amount to ensure basically they're not going out and buying that new vehicle and that kind of stuff. Is there like, so that their credit score basically uh, is improving and they can qualify at the end of the term, right? So is there some sort of monitoring you guys do or coaching? I think that's what I like to call our secret sauce. When we first got started with rent owns, I think we were naive, like a lot of other investors out there that, oh, it's a set it and forget it strategy. As soon as the people move in, the rent to own is in full throttle and we can just kick our feet up, go to Costa Rica and drink cervezas, on the <laughs> not have to check in. But we got a rude awakening. Anyone that was left to their own devices was not doing what they needed to do with credit repair. And we noticed that there was a lot more volatility as they were getting close to the finish line. So then we thought, okay, well, why don't we hold their hands a little bit more? Why don't we keep them a little bit more accountable? Why don't we structure a framework to help them hit certain milestones? And as we started to introduce some of these new systems and processes, we noticed a huge shift. And we were actually able to reach a 90% success rate with all the people that went through our process. So the secret sauce is actually keeping that tenant buyer accountable mm -hmm. during the rent to own term. And I think a lot of investors underestimate just how much effort is involved. What would you say? Yeah, so we provide, we have an automated system that we use where we are constantly sending out emails, reminding them what has to happen, right? You need to reach out to the mortgage broker, you need to be talking about your credit, that's usually a couple of times a year so that the mortgage professional working with them can be on top of where they are going, right? Rather than just waiting for the last three months and then going, well, wait a second, what happened here? 
On top of that, we do support them. So I'm also a mortgage professional and I do support them all the way through. Here's the challenge. Being very honest is that we are dealing with people and people will listen, but they may not act on the advice they're given. So we do have some times where we have to really get creative with solutions because they've gone ahead and made decisions that are not in their best interest just because they wanted to. You know, they wanted that big TV at $7,000. So they went and bought it. <laughs> and in doing so, they hit Best Buy five different times to try to get a credit card. And five different times they were rejected. So they went and bought it in, 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 with a different credit card, a Visa or something, without knowing that Best Buy is under one headquarters. And basically they were denied once and that's all they needed. But they ended up getting denied five times and took a real big hit on their credit. So we can advise and we do provide support and our, my phone anyway is always available to people who want to reach out and ask questions about, I want to make this decision, what or how will that impact me going forward? Uh, we also align them with a third party mortgage professional who will be working with them from the beginning. So their goal is to get them to the end and qualify them for a mortgage. We are seeing a lot more people now are taking advice, which is great. But again, I caution, it is still the human element. And yeah. what... Some people want, some people will go for, regardless of what they're advised to do. But definitely, we've seen a huge shift once we've started taking a more pro more proactive role in trying to stay on top of those decisions for them. It's interesting because you know people are buying again with emotion, right? So it's just like they're they're buying that house with emotion. They're going to go buy that big TV with emotion and not right. necessarily think it through. So that's that's interesting. And then do you set them up on any sort of apps like Credit Karma, that kind of thing, so that they can kind of in real time see what's happening with their credit score? Have you done that at all? No, we haven't. Um, so for a couple of reasons. Number one, many people now already are set up that way. They're set up through their banks. So their bank is already tapping in. So they've got some credit review happening. I would say probably 45 to 50% of the people I deal with are already working through their banks. So that's mm -hmm. great. That is probably 100% increase from where we were five years ago. And then on top of that, like I said, the mortgage professional that works with them is checking in on them every maybe five or six months. So they're doing a soft pull on them too, just to make sure that they're providing advice of where they need to go. So it's it's one thing to set them up on an app like that, but again, another thing for them to understand what it is that they're reading. And this is where that mortgage professional comes in, right? Giving them the advice based on what they're seeing. So here's where we're at. Here's where we want to go. Here's what we suggest you do. And here are the steps you need to take. Now we have to rely on that human element to go away and actually do it, right? And that's the biggest challenge. But we do, uh, I guess, more frequent check-ins. So we know if they're not aligned with the plan earlier than if they were just doing this themselves. Yeah, there's definitely quite a bit of hand-holding during the rent-to-own term to make sure that the families are doing what they need to do to hit certain milestones of the credit repair process, because it's not sexy. Nobody likes dealing with figuring out how to pay off collection items or how to get additional trade lines. These are all things that are not exactly exciting. So keeping people accountable and allowing them to have someone to support them and hold their hand goes a long way to create a successful outcome. Yeah, that's awesome. And is, is there a sweet spot for timing? So is it like three to five years? Do you guys find that there's a right amount of time for each transaction or deal? So it's really dependent on their credit situation, right? And also on their down payment situation. 
So the time that we give them is geared to having them repair or build up their down payment over a period of time that's realistic for them. I think it's credit repair is time. Like I don't buy into any of these companies that say, hey, give me $500 a month. We'll correct your credit in five months. I don't know how that's even possible because a lot of credit companies or credit agencies don't even report. Yeah, they don't report in a five-month window. So it's kind of interesting to read that. But the, the sweet spot for me right now is three to four years. Three to four. Uh, why? Because I find that with two years, it's too short to repair credit issues unless somebody is extremely diligent about doing so. And then, you know, three years usually is most people can correct their situations within a three-year window. Four years gives them a little bit of buffer just in case they lose some hours at work or they do make a silly decision that is more emotionally based rather than, you know, logically based. It also gives them a bit more flexibility monthly with their payment on a four-year term because their payments are stretched out a little bit more. So it allows them a bit more cash flow inside the household. So that's usually that's the sweet spot today based on where interest rates are because you know obviously payments are a lot higher when we're paying at 6.2 or I guess it's now at 6.5% roughly based on today's increase but um definitely the sweet spot would be 3 to 4 years for me. And you know if someone's coming up to the end of their term and you guys are seeing it they're not ready do they have an option sometimes to extend to give them a, okay you you can have an extra year here to get you know to basically qualify is that can Absolutely. that be an option and that's right in the agreement yeah so we do offer that one year extension as long as they've been working towards qualifying right it's it's one thing if they have not listened at all they've gone out and bought a bunch of vehicles they've you know amassed more debt than when they started mm-hmm. there may not be the option for an extension so we do leave that up to the discretion of our investor for sure but it is always an option that they can get in with another year if they need it yeah that's that's good yeah that makes sense and then for our listeners can you also just break down we know what they have to have a down payment but can you kind of explain how you have a mortgage you've got taxes you've got insurance can you kind of break down what that looks like for a typical deal and i know that sometimes you know there's obviously a little bit extra being paid over and above the mortgage right and so can you kind of explain that kind of high level Yeah, so a monthly payment is basically the expenses on the property plus the option credit. So whether it's mortgage and some tax or mortgage and insurance, that would be the expense part. And then the option credit is the portion they're paying themselves. So the home buyer, the the rent-owned family is paying a portion for savings towards building up their down payment each month. The reason we have that, and Rachel touched on it a bit, where if they have a bigger down payment, that payment is lower each month. But if you think about it, when you go to the bank, you're required to have 5% if you have great credit or 10% if you don't, right? And possibly 20% in other cases. Well, when they come into a rent home, they do not have 10% and they have to build it up. So there is no option for me anyway, there's no option to let them go off and build that up on their own because if they could do that, they would have done that already right? They wouldn't be needing a rent zone if they could save and could put 10% away, right? So we build it into the program and I like to to call it buying a piece of equity each month, right? So if it's $3,000 payment and $2,500 covers the expenses on the property, the additional $500 is what they're paying themselves. That's all credited back to them at the end. So it's really important to understand that because they don't have that down payment that's required at the beginning, we have no choice as far as making them a successful candidate to exit into a mortgage, but to have this forced savings component. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, so the option credit and it's basically their future down payment. They're putting it's a savings plan and that's paid. And then obviously it's going to be something that's attainable. That's not going to make them struggle every month. So you guys obviously are figuring out, okay, this is a reasonable number to set, right, for that option. Well, I think there's more mathematics that go into it. It's dependent on the purchase price of the property. What's the current purchase price? What's the future purchase price? What's going to be roughly 10% of that future purchase price? And how do we get them to that 10% target based on what they currently have today and based on what they can afford? So there's quite a bit of mathematics and equations that goes into uh, setting up that number. It's not an arbitrary number. It's a very deliberate calculation that that Neil puts together. And it's case by case, right? Because somebody comes in with 30,000, they're going to have a different set of numbers than somebody who comes in with 40,000, right? So it's definitely a case by case. I get that question all the time. What's the percentage that go, well, it's not really a percentage. It's, it is a percentage, but it's a percentage of where you start, right? And without knowing that, it's very hard to tell somebody what that number will be, but it's absolutely case by case. And we've found that it's probably one of the Number one reasons we have the success rate that we do, because when a bank goes to qualify somebody at the end of a rent-to-home program, a few things have happened for that homebuyer family, that tent, that rent-to-home family. Number one, they will have improved their credit, right? So their score is not 560 anymore, it's 700, right? Or 725 or whatever it might be. They might have had a car loan at 50,000. Well, now their car loan is only 20,000. So their debt-to-income ratio has improved to where you know the parameters are that the bank's looking at. Number three, they have a bigger down payment, right? So now they no longer have 4% or 5%, they have 10%. And the fourth thing that, it's a, it's a wild card in all of this, but equity, right? We set a purchase price up front based on average comparables in the area. And then what happens is at the end of the term, if the market value is higher, then they actually are still buying it below market value, they have some equity in the property as well. That's sort of the win-win, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And then who's covering the property tax and insurance? How are you making sure it's getting paid every month? That is the... the monthly monthly payment. So the, the monthly payment takes into account the mortgage, property taxes, and insurance. And that's also known as the rent, the rent component of the monthly payment. And on top of that monthly rent is the option down payment credit, that forced savings to help them build up a bigger down payment. So the calculations are worked off of the purchase price of the property. Okay, that makes sense. And then because we've seen a really shifting market, right? We saw it really hot early 2022 and now it's things have pulled back. It must be impacting your business. Have you seen any deals where, you know, your projected appreciation, especially you guys are doing Ontario and Alberta, right? So you're kind of you're doing you're working in both markets. Are you doing any other provinces or and expanding into Quebec? Into Quebec, okay. So are you guys finding right now, if, if some of these terms are coming up to an end and I'm the buyer, I'm the rent to own buyer. And I said, oh, I'm going to buy this house at 700,000. And then I'm looking at the market and it's now worth 600,000. Are you getting people that are trying to walk and not buy the property? So to be honest, Corey, we haven't seen that yet. Going through COVID, right? When we, that whole two-year window in COVID, which really had some crazy impacts on the market as well. A lot of properties that people were in at the time that they're exiting out of now went up 30%, right? So even in a rent to own on a four year term, if I use very basic, like just as an example, 5% per year, four years, it went up 20%, where in one year it might've gone up 30 for them. So a lot of these people are actually exiting with a hundred thousand plus in equity. Um, I see, so, so uh, it, it's appreciated so much. 
Yeah. 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 So there's so much buffer there that even if they come down $30,000, they're still ahead by 70 instead of a hundred. Right. Which is great. That's that again is part of the win-win for an investor. There's no management of the property part of the win-win for the tenant buyer, the home buyer, the rental home family, if they can qualify and they have equity in the property, now they're further ahead financially as well. Where things go going forward, this is also going to be interesting, but I think that we're going to see the market, my personal opinion, the market will pick up again in the spring. I think the reason sales are down right now and, and you know, you're in this world, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, is because sellers are waiting to see what buyers are going to do. And buyers are waiting to see what interest rates are going to do. So I think there's this waiting game happening right now. And I think that when we hit our spring market, I do believe that more buyers are going to come into the market. I do believe more sellers might also come into the market. And we might end up seeing a situation again, like I do believe inventory is an issue where we're going to see prices being pushed up again, right? Because there'll be multiple offers and, and people overbidding when they really shouldn't. Yeah, that makes sense. Because even I Calgary, sorry, the Calgary also, we pulled back about 5% in our value at the end of the year, but year over year, we're still up about 12%. You're still gained. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a really important consideration. Remember, we're not selling these properties, you know, six months or a year yeah, or a yeah. year and a half into the rent zone. We're selling these properties three years later, four years later. And the price points that were locked in at the beginning were always based on a very conservative appreciation rate in some markets, four and a half percent. While I know we're seeing definitely some shifts and we're definitely seeing property values coming down a little bit, but here's what we've got going for us from um, the rent to own standpoint. First of all, we always appreciate properties at a very conservative appreciation rate year over year, hovering around four or five Five and a half percent in most markets. Obviously, there's there's different dynamics in certain areas, but that's generally the the principle. Most what what statistics are showing us over you know multiple decades in in decent economies, properties go up in value by seven percent on average. So when we were hitting 25-30% appreciation rates, those were never going to be sustainable. Those were always blips. And we don't base our rent-to-own strategies or systems on blips. We look at historical performance and historical data, and we play below that. And then the other factor that insulates rent-to-owns from a lot of volatility and risk when we've got types of markets that we're looking at right now is that we're always playing in the entry-level price point. You see the biggest adjustment in prices when affordability becomes more compressed in the higher price tag. So the higher the price tag, the more compression you see on the prices. So those people from the higher price tag are dropping down to a more affordable price tag. And your first timers are coming into that entry level price tag. So now you've got demand in that entry level price tag. So is appreciation going to go up in, in that entry level price tag? Or is it at least going to stay pretty predictable and consistent? So that's another really important consideration. Taking into account very conservative appreciation rates when you're structuring the rent to own deal. And on top of that, playing in, in, in our entry-level price point insulates us from risk. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a great strategy for sure. So you talked about how you kind of basically dealing with the percent differences or, or sort of the appreciation, right? And protecting your investors, you're protecting your rent-to-own people. In Ontario, so when, when you were getting those really big jumps, so like, you know, crazy appreciation, 
and then it came time for the rent to own person to buy the property. Was there some sort of anything built into the contract where, you know, so the investors weren't basically missing out on some of that equity, or was it just like, this is the number you're buying it at and it's just locked in and then the uh, rent to own gets the gain. Yeah, that's really how it works for us anyway. And because again, we're dealing with a very small window of time, right? A couple of years where we saw this insane appreciation that it's not a common thing to see. We, we see some of these families are making 20, 25,000 in equity, but for an investor, they bought a home, they're getting out in four years, they have a guaranteed buyer at a price they're happy with because that's what they agreed to upfront and they don't have any maintenance, right? If there's a problem with the furnace, they're not on the hook. The home buyer family will replace the furnace just like they would if they had a bank mortgage. Right? You don't call the bank and say, hey, I need a window. Can you come replace my window for me? They're, they're going to be pretty unfavorable towards that request. So rent to own is very much the same. It's like being a homeowner in training. Right, You're living in the home. You're maintaining the home. You're, in many cases, renovating the home and adding value to the home to make it their own. So an investor doesn't have to worry about all that. So there's sort of this intrinsic value in that I don't have to manage the property. I don't have to worry about repairs. That all sort of adds value to them as investors as well. And at the same point, it allows investors, I mean, rent-to-own is not for every investor. And rent-to-own is really a medium-term strategy to grow your capital quickly with the least amount of headaches. And there's definitely a place for the long-term wealth building strategy where you have a rental property that, you know, after seven to 10 to 15 years, it starts to pay you in dividends. But leading up to that mortgage pay down, it's harder to capitalize the cash flow and you're a lot more involved in tenant turnover things and you know property maintenance and such. So rent to owns have a place for the short-term minded investor that wants cash flow and wants no hassles because ROI isn't just monetary, ROI also comes in the form of time. And peace, of mind. and peace of mind. And as we get older, the demands on our time from our children, from our aging parents, you know, you have to make choices. And family, I think you will agree, Corey, family always comes first. So when you have a limited commodity of time, no one's building any more time or making any more hours in the day, getting the return on time is really more most important. And where you are as an investor in terms of how you want to spend your time is really an important consideration. So yes, ROI is important and rent to owns offer very strong ROI, even if the market goes super high and you're not speculating on that potential, but you're happy with the ROI and the cash flow that you're getting for the next four years and the peace of mind and the fact that you don't have to spend any time or effort making that happen. You're making money in your sleep. It frees up your time. So you've got time ROI and you've got money ROI it makes a huge difference. So you can't really have your cake and eat it too, and then benefit from, you know, crazy market appreciation. If the tenant buyer exits, you should be happy with the ROI you locked into. However, if the tenant buyer chooses not to exercise their option to purchase for whatever reason, well, the investor side is now the beneficiary of the upside of what happened in that marketplace. So that's kind of your insulation from, from risk. You get compensated for taking a chance on helping a family rent to own. If that family chooses not to exercise the option to purchase, well, then you benefit from keeping their initial down payment. You keep their monthly down payment credits for the most part. You benefit from mortgage pay down 
And now you're also the beneficiary of any mm-hmm. fluctuations in the market, any upside in the market. Yeah, for sure. I can see why you guys have been so successful because you're very structured. You have your systems, you're clear on the terms and conditions. It's professional. I've heard stories of, you know, where maybe where the owner or rent to own person is actually doesn't want the deal to go through because, hey, I, I got all this equity gain and, you know, they're not trying to make it actually a win-win or their tenant to be even successful in the deal, right? Unfortunately. And then for all those reasons, they're just taking that money and it's, it's very unfortunate, right? But you guys are making it just a really good thing for everyone that's involved. But you know what, Corey? Even the people that get caught up in those types of rent-to-owns can protect themselves by using a lawyer, right? It's not an expensive thing to have a lawyer review the agreements you're about to sign. You're talking about tenant buyers, not investors. No, I'm talking about tenant buyers, yes, for sure. Because this yeah. is what gives the bad name to rent-to-owns, right? Is there are people that do not know how to structure a rent-to-own. And it's here anyway in Ontario, it's mostly the people who have got a property, it's vacant. They're underwater right now because variable rates have gone up. They throw a rent to rent to own together. Uh, I'm going to say the agreement's like being on the back of a napkin. Nobody reviews it. They're thinking they got a great opportunity and then they can't exit. So then the, the owner of the property is the one who benefits. And this family is set back way further than they were when they started, right? So I, I just, I, I hear these stories all the time. And they're very worrisome. And of course, we're our job, one of our big, big jobs anyway, is to educate, right? I, I, the amount of people I speak to and educate them on how rent down works and the due diligence that they can be doing in order to protect themselves, safeguard themselves against these types of situations. You know, there are definitely, definitely ways to do this ethically. And uh, I'd like to think that we've been doing it that way for 14 years now and uh, continue or plan to continue to do it going forward. Yeah, and our goal is always to elevate the standard with which rent-to-owns are being done. Hopefully, we're we're making a dent. Yeah, you guys definitely are. So, like we talked about how the rent-to-own person would look at properties, view properties, and then, you know, you get that emotional connection. Is there an option for, let's say, an investor that has a property that maybe they're thinking about selling it or, you know, maybe they are underwater because the interest rate's being higher? If they were to reach out to you guys and say, hey, do you have a possible person that would be interested in viewing my property? Like, does it have to be on MLS? Does it have to be a transaction? Or would you look at properties and structuring a deal with someone that currently owns a property? So I think it would start off with a consultation to evaluate how that property is positioned and is it positioned for maximum benefit to reach the investor's goal and also the maximum benefit to a potential tenant buyer. Because in some cases, the investor wants to come off of title. And in some cases, the investor wants to stay on title. And that's really the first thing that an investor has to decide. If they have a property, what is their end game? What are they trying to achieve? Do they want to get out of the mortgage? Maybe they're carrying a first mortgage and a second mortgage on it. And if they tried to stay on title, there's no way they're going to cash flow. So we have to start off with a consultation to understand what's their goal What are we working with in terms of their financing structure and how realistic is it to be able to place rent-to-own family into the deal and make it win-win? Because normally the title gets transferred to the investor during the transaction. And then obviously once the rent-to-own contract is completed, then it goes into the renter's name, right? So that would be right. But if there's already an an investor that's on title, it's really important to understand what their goal is. Do they want to stay on title? Do they want to come off title? Why are they looking at rent own in the first place? 
Yeah, and to to your point about being underwater on a property, like rent to owns now, especially now more than ever, are an amazing vehicle to help people sort of get above water, right? Because you're locking in a rate now. You're not good. You're certainly not going to take on a, a variable mortgage, in my opinion. At this point, I definitely advise talking to your your mortgage professional about the strategy. But I think that a lot of people that we are talking to are looking at rent to owns as a way to get you know seven, eight, nine hundred dollars in cash flow which they're using to offset losses on other properties, right? Because nobody saw the variable rate jumping as fast as it did. Sure, we may have expected it to be, you know, in the six to seven range, but not over a six, seven month period. So I think a lot of people were taken aback by that and are panicking a little bit about what do I do with this property? They're selling these properties. Now there's some built-in equity because during COVID, those homes went up in value too. So they're selling, they're displacing a renter, they're creating fewer rentals now because uh, a family will buy this property and that renter now has to go and fight with other renters to find a rental unit, which is bumping rents up. By using rent own as a big brother, you can take the cash flow, cover off some of these properties to get us through the next what, year, year and a half, two years before rates start to come back down and they're going to start to see these properties cash flowing again, right? So it's kind of like if you have a rental, you're not going to panic you want to hold, you know that there's a cycle, right? You know the values are going to come back. It's a matter of how do you get to that point? So Big Brother, rent owns have been, been sort of a, a topic of discussion that people are using them to help offset these properties that are no longer cash flowing at this time. Yeah, 100%. And then, so our listeners, some of them might be wondering, hey, maybe I want to partner with you guys and be kind of a, an investor, right? So how are you guys screening your investors and how are you determining who's a good fit, that kind of thing? Well, the the first step is really to have a phone call to learn a little bit about what a given investor is trying to do, what are their goals, and make sure that we can support them on achieving their goals. If they're looking for medium-term strategy to create cash flow hands-off and do it in a structured way, then we definitely are a good fit. And then the next consideration is, can they qualify for financing? Because the biggest return on investment with rent to owns is when you can take title on that property and you can come in with your own down payment funds, whether they come from a line of credit or they come from your personal savings is, you know, it doesn't really matter. You'll still cash flow, even if you use a HELOC in the mix, you know, a much more lucrative cash flow without a HELOC using personal funds as down payment. But those are the things that we would need to discuss. What, what capabilities and capacity to borrow that particular investor have. And then we can talk about a sample deal that makes sense and reflects their situation, where we can dive a little bit deeper into the cash flow component and the profit from sale component and uh, determine whether it's a good fit. And it's, again, all very educational. We don't charge any money for sharing this knowledge and we customize the conversation for every investor's needs. Yeah, that's great. And then I just want to circle back about the maintenance part because this was a question I had and you kind of touched on it about the furnace failing, that kind of thing. You guys must be looking for quality products. So that way, you know, it, when you look at it, you view it and it's like, oh, I know the roof shouldn't need to be replaced unless it was hit with a hailstorm, say for the next 10 or 15 years. So that way that tenant buyer isn't getting, hopefully not getting hit with a huge maintenance bill, right? Is that the goal? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, everything goes through an inspection. Right now, more than ever, because we have the flexibility to ask for these conditions, which is fantastic. The home inspection must pass. Right. We usually have our rent owned families. They attend the inspection. They walk behind the inspector. They ask questions of the inspector. So they're in the loop in terms of what situation 
might they face moving forward with that property? On top of that, I review the inspection report as well. I walk through the report with the investor if the investor is not able to attend. And then we decide based on everything that we know, is this a property that's going to make sense? So for example, one of the things I like to look at when I'm looking at properties uh, or even inspections is if we're paying $500,000 for a property and there's $30,000 of repairs, is that $30,000 only going to get us to the value of five hundred? dollars or does it allow for some equity to be built on top of that? So, you know, I buy a house for 500, I replace the kitchen. I've added equity, right? I, that, that value is going to go up as a result of me improving the kitchen. But if I buy it for 500,000, I have to replace the roof. Chances are I bought it at the value that the seller wanted for it without having to replace the roof, right? And I probably should have got it for a little bit less. So these are all the things that we're looking at, but absolutely quality product. We don't want to move into a property that's going to require thousands and thousands of dollars of maintenance. Outdated properties are fine, though, as long as, again, the inspection passes. They can update the property as they, as they move through the program, you know, changing out wallpaper, changing out flooring. All of this adds value for them as well, but it also makes it their own. So um, as long as we're not putting them in a situation, and again, un unforeseen events aside, right? A hailstorm is going to be an insurance item. So yeah. they don't have to worry about that. But things like the furnace, things like the roof, things like the foundation, we can control and have a really good idea of what those expenses will look like if we've done a full-on, you know, license inspection. Any restrictions? So if the uh, rent-to-own tenant wants to, you know, do rentals while they're there, they're like, hey, we got three to four years. We want to replace the floors, we're going to paint, do you restrict them at all, or do you just let them kind of do what they want to do? Well, so again, I think the, the, the difference here is that they put money down on this property, so financially committed to the property, they're not going to do anything that's gaudy or, or crazy, right? So they're doing things that they can add value to the property through what we do restrict. So number one, permits, they must have all permits and it must be approved by by the owner of the property, right? And in fact, many times the owner is going to have to sign off on them. Number two, anything that's structural needs to be looked at by a structural engineer, right? So if they say, hey, we're going to take down a wall. Whoa, whoa, we need to make sure that your bedrooms aren't going to end up in your family room. So let's make sure we have the right people looking at this. But flooring, painting, you know, we've had people replace total kitchens, like $18,000, $20,000 worth of work adds amazing value. They've done beautiful work on these properties. We've had decks added. We've had our driveways fixed. Things that maybe aren't even important to, to the, the owner, right? But they add value. So anything that is done to the property is also more risk taking off of the investor or the owner, right? Because now these people are even that much more committed to succeeding in the program. It just makes yeah. them that much more emotionally and financially connected to the deal. So we always welcome the opportunity for them to make improvements. Nice. Yeah. They get that forced appreciation and they get to improve the property. And yeah, I can see it's a great thing for everybody. Right. Okay, guys, uh, it's been awesome having you guys on the show. I'm just going to hit you with some last uh, like quick rapid response type questions and then uh, kind of wrap up. So uh, what's an app or software you guys couldn't live without either personally or for your business? Calendly. Calendly? Yeah. yeah. I like Raidhub. <laughs> you can see he's the numbers guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And then what, if someone were to Google you guys, what's something they can't find out about you on Google? Ooh, they can't find out. Oh, I know. I know uh, that English is not my first language. 
Oh, interesting. So what is your first language? Now you have to say. You don't have to say it if you don't want to. Oh, okay. Russian is my first language. Interesting. You have zero accent. So you, were you pretty young when you learned English? I was nine when I came to Canada. Nine. Okay. It seems just like yesterday, but. <laughs> That's right. Hey, can you still speak Russian? Of course. I read and write as well. Really? Amazing. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> But needless to say, when she's angry, I get Russian thrown at me. And <laughs> verbal. That's right. But Scottish accent in return. I don't know. For me, I think I, I'm a huge sports advocate and I played competitive baseball and still do. I, I you know, I'm not 75 like I might look. These are all <laughs> things that I think Google wouldn't know. So, yeah, yeah I think the fact that I, I play a lot of baseball and that's really a huge part of who I am. It sounds very shallow, but that's what Google wouldn't know. <laughs> okay. And what's a favorite book or movie you guys have? Ah, so for me, uh, a favorite book is probably Think and Grow Rich. That's, uh, that's the book that I read that ultimately led me to manifesting meeting Michael Jackson. And you did meet him? Absolutely. Awesome. That's cool. So for me, it's uh, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Oh, I haven't, I haven't read that one. You know what? It's such a captivating read. There's so much involved in sort of personal growth in the book, but they hide it in such a great story that you don't realize that you're doing personal growth, if that makes sense. You know, sometimes you sit down to read a book and you're like, oh my God, here we go. Mindset, yeah. this, mindset, that. But when they tell it in a story, it hits you in a very different way and you absorb it so much differently than you would if the book was strictly a personal growth type of book. And it was written by a Canadian. Cool. That's all. I'll have to look it up and read it. Yeah, it's really good. And then so what kind of activities do you guys do outside of, I guess, rent to own? When we're not slaving away at rent to owns and helping make a difference, uh, we play tennis. As a family, we got our children into tennis. So that's kind of a family activity that I always look forward to. Yeah. And I, like I said, I play a lot of baseball. So my, my summers used to be tied up playing, you know, 70, 80 games a summer. Wow. Um, I've, I've been forced in Russian to scale that back. So I'm not playing nearly as much, but I still enjoy it just as much as I did when I was in my twenties, for sure. Awesome. Super active then. Well, guys, it's been great having you on the show and I really appreciate all the knowledge you shared today. Listeners are going to get huge value. What's the best way for people to find you or get a hold of you? So uh, for investors who are interested in exploring the rent-to-own strategy, you can reach us through our website, hellocashflow.ca. And are you guys in on Instagram? Yes, you can find uh, me on Instagram, Rachel Oliver. Okay, thanks again. Awesome, thank thanks, you. Corey. Thanks for having us on. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. 
This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.